0: We're working through this uh, book of Luke, Luke's account of Jesus, and uh, we come to this uh, chapter, chapter 18. Uh, I guess that like many of the chapters in Luke, the first thing that you can say is it's pretty big. Lots of the chapters in Luke are really quite long, so as we come to it, as we're working through this book of Luke, one of the things that's really clear is that we're not going to cover everything we're just taking out little pieces as we journey through it, reminding ourselves that one of, the re- one of the main purposes of Luke's writing is absolutely applicable to us today. He wrote to Theophilus saying, I want you to be sure and certain uh, of what you have heard and what you know about Jesus, so that it becomes life-changing. That's the same for us today. That's why the Word of God is still the Word of God. It continues to be that ever-living, eternal Word speaking to us. And so that's my hope uh, as we work through these next uh, few verses. Uh, I I don't know how many of us in here uh, have got cats. We've got cats. One of the things that I find quite interesting about cats is you can't train them. Well, you can in tiny little ways, But really, they have got kind of a mind of their own. They do their own thing. They they kind of there's a little bit at the end of one of the brilliant Pixar films. I can't quite remember which one it is, um, where they've got this kind of idea of the mind of cats, and they're just doing their own thing. They're kind of all over the place. How true that is. They have their own temperament. Uh, But one of the interesting uh, conversations I had with a friend recently, they were talking about how they would love a savannah cat. Any of you know what a savannah cat is? It's kind of certain incremental levels away from um, a serval cat, which is a wild cat of Africa. You can have an F1 savannah cat is just one generation away from wild serval cats, And I kind of think to myself, well, from our kind of fluffy ragdolls to savannah cats, that's just something else, isn't it? There was a great Christian writer who spoke about a cat, a great cat. His name, I'm sure many of you will know, his name was C.S. Lewis. And he wrote about a lion called Aslan. Uh, And they tie together all of those little kind of pictures tied together because they all talk about domestication. We want to domesticate our cats to a certain extent we've managed to, but they've got their own thing. One of the things that it seems as though people want to do with God is domesticate Him. They want God to be their kind of God. And if we want to give a a, a kind of title for today, I guess what we would say is the God that we need is the God displayed in the Bible, not necessarily the God that we want. There's a difference. C.S. Lewis described God, or Jesus, in the character of this lion, Aslan. And uh, Lucy in Narnia, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, They've been talking about Aslan, and, and Mr. Beaver says to Aslan, Aslan is a lion the, lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In that little picture, C.S. Lewis captures the expectations of the human heart that God should be safe, that God should be kind of domesticated according to our way of seeing things, and yet at the same time, what he also says is God isn't safe, but He is good. I think it is the most amazing picture. And initially when we hear that, the idea of God not being safe, the idea of God not conforming to our ideas of what should be good for us, seems very, very uncomfortable in our generation, in the way we tend to think. We tend to want God to be the way we want God to be say so he's not like that, we think, wow, what is he like then? These two little pictures, these two pictures of people praying, give us a little insight. Prayer is one of those moments where we most reveal the heart of our faith. I think that's one of the ways that we could describe prayer. What we've been looking at a lot of the time is, as we've worked through Luke, is how the things that we do in this world, the way we act, the way we behave, our priorities over money, our priorities over the way we want to control future, and all of those different ways we've looked over these past few weeks. They've been things going on in this world. Now we turn. We turn to a moment where we reveal the moment of connection between our lives and God, the divine, the, be, the God of heaven. That's what prayer is. I don't know whether we ever m- just pause and think what is going on when we pray. It's a moment where we are saying, I believe lots of things. I believe that you exist. Prayer is the most ridiculous, stupid waste of time if God is not there isn't it? It's pointless. And yet, written into us as human beings, the way we are as people, there is something deep down inside of us that wants to cry out to something beyond us. Prayer is a natural experience of human beings. How many times do we have those ideas? Different ways of expressing the same thing. Uh, somebody said there's no atheists in the foxholes of the world, world War I. In other words, in that moment of absolute terror, there are people who just out of nothing are crying out outside of themselves. Not absolute, but it gives a little window. It gives a picture into the idea that prayer is it's not just a routine, it's not just the kind of thing which we, we say, I'm a Christian, therefore I need to pray. There is something instinctively deep written into us that they says that I reach out to something outside of me. When we come to the God of the Bible, and when we say that I pray to that God of the Bible, we are saying, I am in that moment connected with the divine being who is outside of this world, the God of creation, the God of salvation, there is in that moment an expression of the relationship that exists between us. It says, I believe that you are there. It says, I believe that you are good. (laughs) It says, I believe that you are with me. It says, I have no strength in myself. It says I've reached the end of my ability and now I'm reaching out to you outside of me. It says that within me is not the be all and end all. There is more. That's some of those little ways that we might think about the idea of prayer. It is this ubiquitous human experience. It is just everywhere. But Jesus says when he talks about prayer. I'm not talking about an act. I'm talking about the moments when you connect with my Father in heaven. And he describes it in two ways. The first thing he says is, I want you to remind yourselves, don't give up. Don't give up. Why would we give up? I think there's lots of reasons why we would give up. I know there's lots of reasons why I give up. Because it doesn't seem to be working out the way I expected it to work out. Because life's pathway isn't being constructed in the way that I've asked for. Because things are happening around me and nothing seems to be happening as a result of the prayers that I've been praying. Is God not there? Somebody said that the silence of God is His workshop. I think that is a beautiful phrase. When God is silent, that's when He's working. We don't see it. We sometimes have that kind of human experience of either God's not there, or He's, you know, He's 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 listening to everybody else and not listening to me. He, he's He's got other bigger things that He's dealing with. We don't re- re- remember that the silence of God is His is His workshop. So we come to this little picture, and Jesus says, "Don't give up," and I'll give you a picture of why you shouldn't give up. He told his disciples to show them that they should always uh, pray and not give up and he said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared god nor cared what people thought and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea grant me justice against my ad- ad- adversary I want to I want to help you i want to try and encourage you that when you come to the bible Very often with the parables, we get a really clear indication of what the main objective of the story is. Jesus told this parable so that they should always pray and not give up. That's the key thing to take out of this. One of the mistakes that we make is with parables is when we we try to apply every little bit of the story, to some aspect of how God is trying to teach us something. It's just really clear. Don't give up. It's a bit like this. Now, the bit like this, the way that Jesus tells the story, he's describing it through extreme contrasts. He's saying, imagine an unjust judge. (laughs) Well, straight away, we say, what is God saying? He's Is Jesus saying His Father is like an unjust judge? No, He's not. He's saying, imagine an unjust judge. Imagine somebody who didn't have any concern about justice. Now, I guess we could relate that to lots of things. We could relate that to injustice in the world and there would be a sense in which that is right. In one sense, Jesus is saying this is a tragic world where people do not live in a just way, where the rule of law is not applied in a just way, in the way that God would expect. But in the context uh, of Jesus' day, it's saying even more. Because this judge was under the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, 19, it says this, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the widow. Jesus is saying, imagine somebody who has no regard whatsoever for God's law. And this widow keeps coming to him and seeking justice. And he's not bothered. In fact, she keeps coming and coming and coming back to him. Uh, For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, and this is the the kind of irony of what Jesus' story is all about. He says, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. (laughs) The irony is amazing, isn't it? Shakespeare uh, has uh, many occasions where he he portrays a kind of madness. I think this is what this judge is almost describing. This kind of, this raving person who, who might attack me if I don't do something. And yet, how ironic... He's fearful of the attack of a peasant widow, and yet he's not fearful of the justice of God. That's what Jesus is portraying. He's portraying a contrast. He's portraying something which is a real, real problem, and yet this man is willing to do what this woman is wanting. And then Jesus says, now, if that judge is willing to do that, if he's willing to grant that, even though he's the worst case that you could possibly imagine, the person who would be the last to give justice, he's willing to do it. What about your good father? Do you see the contrast in which Jesus is describing this story. He's saying, if the really bad is willing to do it, then surely the really good God is willing to do way more than you could possibly imagine. Therefore, keep going. Even though I don't fear God or care, I'll, I'll do it so that she won't eventually attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? Is that what God is like? Is God, in other words, He's saying, is God like an unjust judge? No, He's not. He's a a good God. (laughs) Therefore, when you speak to him you are not speaking to somebody as though you are having to kind of drag a result out of somebody now why is this important why is Jesus describing it in this way because very often we sh- we feel in our prayers as though God is like this unjust judge we feel as though there's nothing happening So I've got to keep going back. I've got to keep going back. I've got to kind of strong arm him. I've got to twist him into a place where finally he'll do what I want. In other words, there is a danger in our persistence that we end up in a mindset which is trying to domesticate God. Even in our prayers. I think that's amazingly powerful. The persistence that Jesus encourages us to have, can so easily trip into the idea that I can control God. I can interpret this and say, if I keep on asking, I'll get what I want. (laughs) Keep on asking because He's good. That's why you keep on asking. Because in contrast to an unjust judge, He's a just judge. In other words. It might be that we are asking for one thing and something else happens and that's because it is the good justice of our Father in heaven. That's the difference. It's not because we've got an unjust Father who's not interested. But there is the danger that when we think about this encouragement to pray persistently, we can twist it into a way of domesticating God, into a way of controlling God, into a way of making sure that God gives us what we are asking for. And so, there is a contrast now with the next parable. What does does control look like? What does domestication look like? Well, I know what domestication looks like with our cats. That's a safe way. Our cats, one of them particularly, is they're indoor cats. They, they stay inside. One is a shocker. He's he constantly trying to get out the front door. Absolute horror. I, we've got to find a way to try to domesticate this cat so that he doesn't run out the house because that's good for him. It's good that He doesn't go out. And so we're working hard to try to do that. We're controlling Him because that's good and because we're right. When we try to control God, we're kind of like saying, I'm right. When we try to domesticate God, we're saying, my way of thinking is the right way of thinking. Therefore, conform. And then Jesus goes on to say to some of those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And he goes on to the next story about prayer. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The location is incredibly important. They go up to the temple. They go up to a place which is, in every sense, it is the, the focal point of the place of mercy, the place of God's justice, the place of God's sacrifice, the way in which the unworthy can become worthy. I think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't just say, two men were praying. He actually says, two men went to the temple and they prayed. And in the temple, this is how they prayed. The first one prayed like this. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Somebody has described it in this way. This man is making a shameless declaration that I am righteous before you. He's going into the temple, and without any shame, he's saying this is who i am i love the language because it is so subtly acceptable because just kind of pushed onto the front end of what he says there i god i thank you isn't that interesting god i thank you that i'm not like this i, I it seems as though initially when we look at it, well, what's wrong with that? God, I thank you that I'm not like. Isn't all of the glory, isn't all of the thanks going to God? I thank you that I am not like this. And yet what Jesus is saying is, this man is wrong. I, I think, there's, hmm. Okay, here we go. <laughs> there is a language I think that grows in our culture. There is a language which exhibits itself in lots of ways. There is, if you Google it, there's a. You know that I'm. I don't want to beat up on social media, but I'm going to beat up on social media. There's a brilliant article by on the Desiring God website on our statuses on Facebook and all the rest of it, why we do it, why we use it, all the rest of it. If we're really brutally honest, isn't it often the case that the language that we use is is subtly and very often quite like the language of this Pharisee? God, I thank you that. And then whatever follows on from there. God, I thank you that you've blessed me with a Ferrari 358 DB, whatever it is. I thank you that, and actually, subtly underneath that is the desperate desire that everybody knows that's what I've got. Everybody knows that's where I am. Everybody knows that's who I am with. Everybody knows that's what I've achieved. But what we do is we prefix it with a few words that spiritualize it, kind of make it okay, make it acceptable, make it sound as if we're being right and just. And I think the Pharisee is just one of those great examples that speaks to me that says, how easily do I use language that exalts me, that builds me up and just has a few words at the beginning which justifies everything that I'm about to say. I think in lots of ways this guy we can easily stand at the side and say, well, yeah, of course, we would, we would never pray like that. And yet, revealed in the heart is so much of what we see in this Pharisee. In contrast, we see somebody else. We see the tax collector. Somebody who is at that point of nothing. What does he say? The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. What an amazing contrast. You see, both of these guys They were in the place of sacrifice. One didn't recognize who he truly was and the other recognized who he truly was. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. One calls for confidence, one uses the language of confidence, the other uses the language of humility. How do we move from self-reliance to hope? I think the final few verses that we picked up towards the end are the moment. Where we can really see it. This verse 31 is a turning point in the book of Luke. It's a moment where the 12 are instructed by Jesus we are now on one specific journey. We're going now to Jerusalem. We're going now so that everything that has been written about me is going to be fulfilled. What's going to happen? I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. And on the third day, I will rise again. It's a little bit of a difference the way I read that, wasn't there? That's what Jesus is actually saying And yet he's saying it in a way which is talking about that son of man motif from the Old Testament. And he's saying this is now what's going to happen. I'm connecting myself, I am identifying myself with that one. I'm identifying myself with the one who is going to be handed over, who's going to be beaten and mocked and insulted, flogged and killed, and then I'm going to rise again. You see, the issue with the tax collector is in one sense, he gets to the temple and he prays with truth about who he is. Imagine if we came to God again and again and again, and that's what we brought, but that's where it ended. If that's all that was said. If there was no hope, (laughs) in other words... If we came to God and we said, I, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And that was the end of it. Imagine if that was what our prayer was. And yet what Jesus says is, He's blessed this man because of his honesty. What does blessing look like for us today? What do we know of why this man was blessed? We know that this man was blessed because actually he's forgiven. He's justified. He's made right. He's cleansed. He's made righteous. How? How does that work? How can that possibly be so? How can we get from the point of honesty about our sinful condition to hope? We see the roots of it, in verse 31 to verse 34. We see that our hope is in the absolute determination of Jesus to turn at that point and say, right, now we're on a journey to Jerusalem. From here on, through the rest of Luke, that's where we're headed. We are on our way to Jerusalem with a purpose. The death of Jesus on the cross has been routinely interpreted in different ways. More recently, it's been interpreted as a desperate, tragic occasion. something which at best is an example of how to stand in the face of the most terrible opposition. If that's all the death of Jesus is, then we have got no hope. We've got no hope. Hope comes from the determination of Jesus to go to the cross, to determine at that moment, this moment in time, we're turning around, guys, we're on our way to Jerusalem, and we're headed for me to achieve something, to do something. That's where we're headed. This is the great turning point. As we look at God portrayed in these two little pictures, we see something quite striking. We see a God who says, One is not blessed and one is blessed. We see a God who is good in contrast to a judge who is bad. But what we do not see is a God who we can domesticate. We see a God who is above us. We see a God who is good, who will listen, who will be receiving of those who are deeply honest about our condition. And we see ultimately a God who is willing to turn and set His face to Jerusalem and die for us. As somebody has said, the lion roars. <laughs> That's the outcome, isn't it, of Narnia? That's the outcome, really, of the work of Jesus. Jesus.